G'day and welcome to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. I'm Marius Jigau and on this show we're examining biblical concepts and ideas and asking ourselves the important question, is it relevant today? Or is it as outdated and ridiculous as New Year's without fireworks? As the Christmas season is upon us, it's a time when many people are talking about Jesus and his birth. However, did you know that 48%, that's almost half of Australians, do not believe in Jesus? So this begs the question, is there a way to prove that Jesus existed and was who he claimed to be? Can we really prove anything? It's very hard to prove things today. Which is why I personally really love maths. I love maths because it's something that can be easily proven. In America, they call it math. In Australia, we call it maths. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we can't count. But I really love it. It's easy to prove that 2 plus 2 equals 4. When I first went to Monash University, one of the first lecturers I went to told us something which I thought was quite interesting and a little bit absurd. He told us that you can't prove anything. And I remember thinking, well, that's a weird thing to say. He then said, If you were to say, I can prove that I exist, I can prove that I am right here in front of you, he said, well, are you sure? I can offer an alternate hypothesis. I could say that you've just had too much carbon monoxide. And in fact, you're in a hospital somewhere in Ballarat. You're just hallucinating that you're right here in front of us. And they tell us that you can't really prove anything. And this is an idea that's common in the world around us today. In fact, I was looking at an article in Scientific American titled Common Misconceptions About Science. Number one, scientific proof. Why there's no such thing as scientific proof. Another article I found in Psychology Today said, I'm a scientist and I don't believe in facts. The benefits of a post-truth society. We live in a society where we are steering away from absolute truth and moving into the idea that things are relative to each one of us. For example, an image of a six is often presented to us and there's an individual sitting at the top of this six and an individual sitting at the bottom. One is saying six and the other is saying nine. And it's suggested that both of these are correct in what they're saying according to their perspective. I'd like to say that I think that this is ridiculous. I believe that there are things such as absolute proof. For example, in this image we've just discussed, the person who would have written the number would have had a number in mind. And that would have been the truth. Now, whether one or neither of the people who are standing on either side of the number know what it is, doesn't mean that there isn't such a thing as absolute truth. However, Today we're told that truth is relative. So when we look at the idea of Jesus and the idea of did Jesus exist, we're told, well, you see, this depends on your interpretation of the facts. This depends on how you choose to look at the data. I'd like to state that whether or not Jesus existed has absolutely nothing to do with the way you interpret the facts. Whether or not Jesus existed only has to do with whether or not Jesus existed. But how can we be sure what happened 2,000 years ago? We'll find out just after this song.
Is It Relevant Today? I'm Marius Jigel, and today we're asking ourselves, did Jesus exist? So, how do we know anything about history? How do we look and find out whether people existed or not? Well, the first way that we could do this is by looking at the archaeological evidence. One may do a dig and they may find a house, and in this house they may find some carpenter's tools. And from these they may deduce that either a carpenter lived here, or maybe someone who made carpenter's tools lived in this house. Another way that we discover things about history is through a oral history. The idea that's passed down through generations. And there are oral histories to be found in almost every culture. It's interesting that in almost every single civilization today, an oral history of the biblical flood story exists. However, oral history has some problems associated with it. This can be easily demonstrated by the game Chinese Whispers. Have any of you played this game? The way this game works is you tell someone something, and they're meant to tell the person next to them, and they the person next to them, and so forth. And when you get 20 people down the road, you usually find out that the thing that the last person says is often very different from the original sentence that was said. For this reason, oral traditions are sometimes a little bit exaggerated. But there is a much more reliable way of looking into history, and this is through manuscripts. One way we can look at what happened in the past is by looking at what do the manuscripts from the past tell us that happened there. Now, the way that we investigate manuscripts is by first looking at how many of them are there. How many manuscripts do we have that are telling us something that happened in the past? All literary manuscripts that we have today are copies of copies. We do not have any original literary documents. The only original documents that we have are things like personal letters and bills of sale and things like that. But no literary manuscripts do we have the original. We only have copies of copies of copies. So we first look to see how many do we find, and then we compare them one to another. How does this one compare with that one? And this is sometimes referred to as textual criticism. The third thing that we do is we look at. When was the document discovered? What was the date? And how far was there between when the document was written and when the earliest copy was discovered? So let's have a look at Plato, for example. Plato lived between the fifth and fourth century BC, and Plato gave us a number of works. One is called Phaedo, which literally means "on the soul." In fact, this document has shaped humanity's view on the afterlife, but that's a topic for another show. Plato was an influential philosopher, and he's given us a number of quotes. One of them is, "Wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something." Another thing that Plato has said is, "If you don't take an interest in the affairs of your government, then you are going to live under the rule of fools." Now, I'm not going to make any comments about this in our government today, but I have to admit I haven't paid much interest into the affairs of our governments. Maybe I should start looking into it more. Now, how many of Plato's documents do we have? We have around 250 manuscripts from Plato, and the time between when the earliest known copy was found from when it was written is around 1,100 years. 
Yet, no credible historian denies the existence of Plato. It's actually interesting that Socrates, who was Plato's teacher, hasn't given us any documents. We do not have any documents from Socrates. However, again, no credible historian will deny his existence. Now let's look at Aristotle, for example. Aristotle was Plato's pupil. Aristotle actually taught Alexander the Great, who conquered the then-known world, in under ten years. Now, Aristotle also gave us a number of quotes. This is one of my favorites from him. He says, "We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit." I really like this. We aren't the things that we do occasionally. The occasional good acts that we do—they don't define us. What actually defines us is what we repeatedly do. Our habits are the things that define us. Now, another thing that Aristotle wrote, which I really like, is there is no great genius without a mixture of madness. I don't know if he was speaking about himself or who he was talking about here. But how many documents from Aristotle do we have today? Well, we have forty-nine documents from Aristotle, and the number of years between when it was first written and the first known copy was around fourteen hundred years. Again, no one questions the existence of Aristotle. So, what about the Bible? What about the New Testament? How many manuscripts of the New Testament do we have? Well, in Greek we have five thousand eight hundred. In Latin we have over ten thousand. In other languages we have another nine thousand three hundred. That's a whopping twenty-five thousand manuscripts of the New Testament. Now compare this with Aristotle, who had forty-nine. That's over five hundred times as many. Now, what about the time between when the earliest copy was found to when it was written? Now, this is very important because this goes to the credibility of the document. The longer the time between when it was written and the earliest known copy allows more time for errors to creep in. There was a document that was discovered called P fifty two. It's a fragment of the Book of John. In fact, I have a replica of this in my home. I don't have the original; they wouldn't let me take it home. This document is written on both sides, and it was actually purchased by a man called Dr. Greenfell in 1920, and he bought it for his university in Manchester. And they looked at it and left it for about 14 years. Then one of his pupils picked it up and had a look and realized it's an early copy of the Book of John. It has a fragment from John chapter 18. So he went to some local professors, the leading experts in dating at the time, and they sent him back the data. Now the Book of John is believed to have been written around 90 A.D. So they dated this fragment from the test. Three of the four experts who were dating it said it's written somewhere between 100 and 1500 A.D. The other person said that it was between 90 and 100 A.D. Essentially, what these people were saying that the time between when the original was written and the earliest copy that we have is somewhere between one and sixty years. Now, if we compare this with Aristotle, who we've just stated that no credible historian denies his existence, with Aristotle, the difference between when the original was written and the earliest known copy was 
1400 years. When we compare this with Plato's 1100 years, this suggests that the New Testament is far more credible than any of these documents are. But what about the place and time where these documents were written? How do these speak about their credibility? We'll find out just after this song. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered would soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? And when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again. The lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today, right here on Faith FM. You're listening to Marius Jigau, and today we're looking at the evidence for the existence of Jesus. We've so far discovered that there are far more New Testament manuscripts than any other manuscripts that we have today. 500 times more than Aristotle's manuscripts. And the date between when they were written and the earliest known copy is only between 1 and 60 years, compared with Aristotle's 1400 years and Plato's 1100 years. But the place where it was written is also of critical importance. You see, If you were going to write a lie and try to sell it to someone, for example, if I was to say the people of Maryborough are really evil, they are cruel people, they have a guillotine next to the train station where they execute shoplifters. If I was trying to sell this lie, 
would I get very far if I was trying to sell it right here in Maryborough? No, not at all. People in Maryborough know that there's no guillotine next to the train station. If I wanted to sell this lie, I may do better if I was, for example, to take it to North Korea. There it would be more likely to sell as they would have a lot less information about what's happening in Maryborough. Now, the fact that the books of the Bible were written very close to where the events happen made them easily verifiable. And not only that, but they were written within a short time after Jesus returned to heaven. The people who had actually seen Jesus alive personally were still alive at this time. Imagine that someone would have gone to a church where they were reading John chapter 11 about how Lazarus was raised from the dead. And one of them in the church said, Oh yes, my brother witnesses, this is true. If it wasn't true, however, the local people would be like, Hang on, this never happened, what are you talking about? Now, while there is compelling evidence that New Testament accounts are true and accurate, some people will argue this evidence is highly biased. People say to me, Yes, Marius, I see that there are over 25,000 manuscripts and there's a very short time between when they were written and when they were copied to allow errors to creep in. I also know that these documents were written very close to where these events actually happen. But isn't it all highly biased? Imagine that I had been picked up by the police and they threw me in the back of a van. Now, I don't need to imagine this has happened to me once before, but we won't go into that today. Let's imagine that they accused me of murder. And they went to my wife and they asked her, where was Marius last Sunday between 7 and 8? And she'll say to them, oh, he was in Maryborough. Would this be credible evidence on my behalf? While this is some evidence, my wife will be highly biased towards my freedom. Or at least you'd hope that she'd be highly biased towards my freedom. Now, if they were to ask my parents, where was Marius last Sunday? And my parents would say, oh yes, he was in Maryborough. Would this corroborate the evidence? Yes, some, a little bit more, but still, all these people are highly biased towards my freedom. What about if they were to go to one of my enemies? Now, I don't have any enemies that I know of. I think I've gotten rid of them all. But imagine that they found some of my enemies. And they went and asked them, Where was Marius on Sunday between 7 and 8? And my enemies said he was in Maryborough. Would this be credible evidence? Well, I believe that this would go a lot further to support my whereabouts because they have no interest to lie on my behalf. In fact, if anything, they would have more interest to say something that would condemn me. Is there any of this kind of evidence for the New Testament? Is there any kind of evidence where people who are biased against Jesus, biased against Christians, are supporting biblical accounts? We'll find out just after this song. Just 
Let's repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Is it relevant today? You're listening to Marius Jigau, and today we're looking at the evidence for the existence of Jesus. We've discovered that there's overwhelming manuscript evidence, but now we're asking: Isn't all of this evidence highly biased? Is there any unbiased evidence? Like, is there any evidence from those who are neutral to Christianity, or even those who are opposed to Christianity? The answer to that question is. Yes, there is. There is a lot of evidence of this kind. One of my favorites is Tacitus. Tacitus was a famous Roman historian who lived between 56 and 120 AD. This means he would have been alive in the same time as many of those who would have seen Jesus face to face were alive. And he gives us an interesting document where he's speaking about Nero. Now Nero is believed to have started a fire in Rome and then blamed the Christians for it. And he writes about this. He says, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fasted the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called the Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. That last part is quite interesting. He says all things shameful become popular in Rome, according to Tacitus. Now let's have a look. How did he feel about Christians? Well, he refers to them as a class that were hated for their abominations. He also refers to them as having a most mischievous superstition and the source of the evil. Obviously, Tacitus doesn't like the Christians one bit. 
but he confirms a number of things that have happened in the Bible. In fact, he confirms five things. Firstly, he confirms that there was a group called the Christians. He confirms that this group had their origin with Christ. He further confirms that Christ suffered the extreme penalty, which for Rome was, of course, crucifixion. He also confirms that this happened during the reign of Tiberius, and he further confirms that this happened at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So here we have Tacitus, someone who has no interest in the Christians. In fact, he hates the Christians. He confirms a number of biblical accounts. And he is not the only one. We have another nine people which are not Christians. They're not favorable towards Christians. Two of them are not antagonistic towards Christians. They're kind of neutral. But seven of them are actually highly biased against Christians. And they confirm evidence that we find in the Bible. It's no wonder that the famous historian Michael Grant writes, In recent years, No serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they have not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger and indeed very abundant evidence to the contrary. Now, Michael Grant died a couple of years back. He was a well-known historian and classicist, and he was very interested in the first century AD. Now you may say, okay Marius, I see that there's compelling evidence of the New Testament manuscripts. There's over 25,000 copies and a very short time between when it was written and the earliest copy. And even people that dislike Christianity, even they confirm it. But what if Jesus was just a man? Have you ever had anyone say to you, Jesus was just a man? I've had many people say this to me. Many people says, oh yes, he was a nice man. He was a good and kind rabbi. Is it possible that Jesus was just a regular man? C.S. Lewis gave us a number of writings. One of his most famous is the Chronicles of Narnia. And he writes an interesting statement regarding this topic. He says that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. Essentially, what C.S. Lewis is saying is The kinds of things that Jesus said leaves us only three options. Either they were said by the Son of God, just as Jesus claimed, or they were said by someone who was delusional and thought he was the Son of God, or they were said by someone who was deliberately setting out to deceive the people around him. So, what kinds of things did Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now imagine that I came to you and said, I am the light of the world. What would you think? You'd be like, "Uh, yes, officer, he claims to be the light of the world, right? What about if I said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me? What would you think if someone came to you and said, I've come down from heaven? What about if someone said, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus also said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now what the Jews would have immediately recognized was that Jesus was claiming to be the same Jehovah God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14. So if a man came to you and said, I am the light of the world, or I am Jehovah God, you think he's crazy, right? Either that or he's deliberately trying to lie to you. Now, when people say that Jesus was just a man, then they have the issue of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And they'll often say things like, he didn't actually die on the cross, he just fainted on the cross. This is sometimes referred to as the swoon theory. Swoon meaning to faint or to pass out. Some people say, Jesus just fainted. He didn't really die, and therefore he didn't really raise from the dead because they never put him in the grave. It only appeared that he died, and he came back later and said he had raised from the dead, but the truth is, he never actually died. Is something like this actually possible? We'll find out just after this song. Holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth.
Welcome back to Is It Relevant Today? Right here on Faith FM. You're listening to Marius Jigao and today we're looking at the evidence for the existence of Jesus. We've so far discovered that there is an overwhelming amount of manuscript evidence for his existence in both Christian manuscripts and in those of individuals opposed to Christianity, such as Tacitus. We're now asking, is it possible he existed and was just a good man? We discovered that a man who said the kinds of things that Jesus said and was simply a man would have either been a colossal liar or a madman. But we're now looking at Jesus' crucifixion. What happened at the cross? Did Jesus die on the cross? Is it possible that Jesus didn't die on the cross? Or is it possible that his resurrection was fabricated? Well, let's have a look at the evidence. The people who were ordered to execute Jesus were Roman soldiers. These ones were trained executioners. But more than that, they had to make sure that their victim was dead because... If the victim escaped alive, they would themselves be put to death. So let's have a look at what happened during Jesus' crucifixion. We have an interesting verse in John chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, which reads, But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing forth a flow of blood and water. So, what's going on here? Well, the time of Jesus' crucifixion was just before the Passover. Now, this was a time of festivity and celebration all throughout Jerusalem. In fact, thousands of Jews came to Jerusalem specifically for this celebration. And the Jews didn't want to see people being crucified during this time. So, they went to Pilate and said, can we just kill them? We don't want this torture to intrude on our celebrations. And Pilate said, okay, go and break their legs. Now, when one is crucified, in order for them to exhale, they need to push up on the nail that was nailed to their feet. That way, they were able to exhale and then draw another breath. Now, when someone's legs were broken, this made them unable to push up anymore. And they would simply suffocate. So as the soldiers came up to Jesus, they didn't break his legs, because they found him already dead. Now notice what the soldiers didn't do. The soldiers didn't go off and say, Oh yeah, he appears to be dead. Let's go to McDonald's. No, they said, Yeah, he appears to be dead. Let's make sure that he's dead. And they got a spear and they pierced it into his side, through his lungs and quite probably into his heart. And then something interesting happened. It says that there was a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, crucifixion typically resulted in death in one of two ways. The first way is by hypovolemic shock, which simply means too much blood loss. And the body doesn't have enough blood to pump around. The other more common way is by asphyxiation. Both of these ways of death would result in a decreased oxygen in the body. Now, when the body has decreased oxygen supply, what it often does to try combat this is to push out fluid from the vessels into the capillaries, into the surrounding tissues. And it does this in order to concentrate the blood. And this results in a condition called 
pericardial effusion, which means water around the heart, and also in a condition called pleural edema, which means water around the lungs. So when the soldiers stabbed Jesus, they saw blood and water come out. Now, they wouldn't have had these fancy terms like we have today, such as pericardial effusion and pleural edema. They would have known that when someone is crucified and they have died and we stab them in the lungs and quite probably into the heart, we expect blood and water to come out. And this way, they would have been absolutely convinced that Jesus was actually dead. But there are other people who say, Yes, Marius, Jesus most definitely died on the cross, but is it possible that he simply remained dead? Is it possible that Jesus never rose from the grave? Is it possible that his disciples stole the body and told people he had raised from the dead? Now, it's very important when we're trying to answer this question to know that the Jews were actually afraid that this would happen. And they spoke to Pilate and asked him, Can you give us a guard? Because we don't want them to steal Jesus' body. And Pilate said to them, Take a guard and make them as secure as you know how. A Roman guard typically consisted of a 16-man unit. Each one of these were in charge of an area of 6 square feet, just under 1 square meter. If one of these guards fell asleep, he would be burned to death with his own clothes. But not just that. He would not be the only one who was put to death. The entire 16-man unit would be put to death if only one of the soldiers fell asleep. They had every incentive to make sure that they didn't fall asleep, but not only that, to make sure that their friends didn't fall asleep as well. This was what was guarding the tomb. Is it possible that Jesus' body was stolen? No, most definitely not. In fact, Paul writes about this and he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If only for this life we have the hope in Christ, we of all people are to be the most pitied. Paul realized, as would have the disciples, that Jesus' resurrection was the critical point of Christianity. And for me, one of the best arguments that Jesus did in fact die and raise from the dead was what happened to the disciples. Did you know that all the disciples, with the exception of John, were martyred because of their beliefs? They tried to kill John, but they weren't able to. But all of them were martyred because of their belief in Jesus. I believe this is extremely good evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because If he hadn't, who would give their life for a lie? Imagine when the executioner is telling them to confess or die. Well, they would simply confess. But if you knew that Jesus raised from the dead, then you would have no fear of death. Then you would know that his promises are valid for you and that he will raise you from the dead as well. There is compelling evidence for the existence of Jesus. There's over 25,000 manuscripts and a time of only 1 to 60 years between the earliest known copy and when it was written. Even people antagonistic towards Christianity confirm events in the New Testament. Jesus didn't leave us the option to believe that he was just a man. 
He most definitely died on the cross and most definitely rose from the grave. As the Christmas season is upon us and we are thinking about Jesus, we have compelling evidence that Jesus existed and that he was who he claimed to be. What simply remains now is, what will you choose? The Bible tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. As some of you know, before I came and gave my life to God, I was stuck in a world of drug abuse. I was stuck in a world of alcohol abuse. There were people that would look at me and have pity on me because they thought, there is no hope for this man. In fact, my father tells me that at one stage he said to himself, if Marius dies, well then he dies. There's no more I can do for him. And one day I decided to put God to the test. I decided to taste and see if the Lord is truly good as he claims to be. That day my life changed. As we've seen today, there is compelling evidence for the existence of Jesus. All that remains is the choice that you will make. I want to invite you today and ask you, will you taste and see that the Lord is good for yourself? Won't you make this decision today as we close in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the compelling historical evidence for the existence of Jesus and for the price that was paid for us. We want to give our hearts to you. Lord, I pray for those who are making the decision now to taste and see that you are good just as you promised. Lord, I pray for strength and for courage for them, Lord. And Father, we pray that you draw nearer and nearer to us during this Christmas season. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you for listening today and don't forget to visit our YouTube channel called Is It Relevant Today? where we have video presentations on many topics including this one called Did Jesus Exist? But for now, God bless and I hope you have a magnificent Christmas.
to Is It Relevant Today? If you have any questions or comments, please leave them on our Facebook page, Is It Relevant Today? But for now, thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week. I love to tell the story T'will be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love